I've titled our message this morning, Is There an Object of Mercy? I could have entitled it, Why Would You Look on Such a Dead Dog as Me? Probably a little long of a title, but both of them fit. Is there an object of mercy? And here in 2 Samuel chapter 9, David has finally ascended to the throne of Israel. He was anointed by Samuel a long time ago. Now David is king. He's sovereign over all the land. Every enemy everywhere has been defeated. Now normally when a new king would come to the throne, the common practice was that he would kill all the relatives of the old king so there'd be no more heirs, that there would be a threat to his throne. Now that was a very brutal practice. But nobody thought anything of it. It was just natural. It was just made sense. That's what the new king would do. And David definitely had the right to do that. He is God's anointed king of Israel. There should be no threats to his throne. Saul and none of Saul's descendants should ever be king. They shouldn't be. They, 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 they don't deserve the right. They're, they're man's choice, uh, God's choice. They should be put to death. Saul had stood as an enemy of David for years and as enemy of God too. So he should be put to death. Isn't that a picture of Christ, the King of Kings? He's sovereign in all of his creation, but no enemy can stand in opposition to him. And the Holy God could in absolute justice damn every son of Adam. He could do that. Now that's very brutal. Very brutal. I, I hate to think about somebody being condemned to hell. I mean, it's just, it's more horrible than, I, than the human mind could, could really wrap itself around. That's very brutal if God would do that. But nobody could say God's not just if he damns a guilty sinner, could he? Nobody could say God's unjust. Nobody could say that God would be unjust in damning his enemies because that's what they deserve. But David as a type of Christ, is determined to show mercy. Verse 1, 2 Samuel 9, And David said, Is there yet any that is left of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? David says, I want to show mercy to my former enemies. Is there any of them left? Is there any object of mercy left that I can show them the kindness of God? Now, the question that comes to my mind is why? Why would David want to show mercy to the house of Saul? After everything Saul done to him, why would David want to show mercy to the house of Saul? Why would he want to preserve those heirs who someday might come back and say they have a claim to his throne? Why would he do that? Well, it's for the very same reason that Almighty God determined to have mercy on the sinners that he chose to save. It's for the very same reason. And I want to give you three reasons from our text this morning. And I've thought about this. I've, I've prayed about this. I've prayed that maybe this morning there's an object of God's mercy here. Oh, I prayed so. And if there is an object of God's mercy here this morning, God's going to be pleased to be merciful to you this morning. I can tell you three reasons why God would choose to be merciful to a sinner like you. The first one is this. Why would David want to show mercy? Why would God show mercy to sinners? It's because of a covenant promise. 
Now, Saul was David's mortal enemy. I mean, how many times did Saul try to kill David? Many. Every time David had an opportunity to kill Saul, he wouldn't do it. How many times did Saul try to kill, kill David? And after all of that, David is still determined to show mercy on some descendant of Saul. David's going to show mercy to the descendants of Jonathan, who is Saul's son. And you know why? Because that's what David promised he would do. Look back at 1 Samuel chapter 20. 1 Samuel chapter 20. David and Jonathan were, were dear, dear friends. In 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 11. And Jonathan said unto David, come, let us go out into the field. Let's go take a walk together. And they went out, both of them, into the field. And Jonathan said unto David, O Lord God of Israel, when I have sounded my father about tomorrow any time, or the third day, and behold, if there be good toward David, and I then send not unto thee, and show it thee, the Lord do, do so, and much more to Jonathan. But if it please my father to do thee evil, then I will show it thee, and send thee away, that thou mayest go in peace, and the Lord be with thee, as he hath been with my father. And thou shalt not only, while I yet live, show me the kindness of the Lord, that I die not, but also thou shalt not cut off thy kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord hath cut off the enemies of David, every one of them from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, Let the Lord even require it at the hand of David's enemies. And Jonathan caused David to swear again, because he loved him. For he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said to David, Tomorrow is the new moon, and thou shalt be missed, because thy seat will be empty. And thou hast stayed three days, and thou shalt go quickly and come to the place where thou didst hide thyself when the business was in hand, and thou shalt remain by the stone easel. And I will shoot three arrows on the side thereof, as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send a lad, saying, Go find out the arrows. And if I expressly say unto the lad, Behold, the arrows are on this side of thee, Take them, then, come thou, for there is peace to thee, and no hurt, as the Lord liveth. But if I say unto the young man, Behold, the arrows are beyond thee, go thy way, for the Lord hath sent thee away. Now this was a covenant that Jonathan and David made with each other. And here's why Jonathan brought this up, this matter up. He, he wanted to make this covenant, because Jonathan knew something. He knew Saul, his father, was not God's king. He knew David was God's king of Israel. He had already been anointed king of Israel. Jonathan knew that. And Jonathan knew David as the rightful king of Israel. But Jonathan wanted mercy for his children. So he entered into this covenant with David so that David would show mercy to Jonathan's children after David became king. And it's very interesting. Jonathan and David entered into this covenant when Jonathan didn't have any children. There are no children born yet, but he entered into this covenant with David. Now, that's such a good picture of God's covenant of grace. God would be just if he damned the entire human race. He would be just. Adam's fallen race doesn't deserve any mercy from God. Any more than Saul's house deserved mercy from David. We don't deserve mercy from God. Every last one of us are natural born enemies of God. But it's God's character to be merciful. It's God's character. 
God is going to be merciful to someone. Since it's God's character to be merciful, he must be merciful to someone because his character is merciful. And when God's going to be merciful to somebody, I'll tell you why he's going to do it. It's because he promised to do it. Because of his covenant mercies. A covenant is a promise. And before time began, God made a promise that he would save a sinful people by his mercy and by his grace. And God being wise did not leave it to chance to say, well, who who will be worthy of my mercy? Who will accept my mercy? Who will accept my son? God knew if he left it to chance, nobody would be saved. So the father chose a people to save. If if he didn't elect a people to save, nobody would be saved. He elected a people to, to, to save and he gave them to his son. And the father made a promise to his son. I'll accept these people. If son, if you suffer and die for their sin, you make them righteous and I'll accept them. That was the father's promise to the son. And the son's promise to the father was, I'll do it. I'll do everything that it takes to save these people from their sin. Now that's the covenant. That's the promise between the father and the son. That's a picture pictured by the covenant between David and Jonathan. And this promise of grace, this covenant of grace between the Godhead was made long before any of the objects of God's mercy and grace were ever born. He made this covenant of grace before he created anything. This is the eternal covenant of grace. Now this covenant between David and Jonathan is a covenant that's between David and Jonathan only. This isn't a covenant between David and Mephibosheth. This is a covenant between David and Jonathan. Jonathan promised, David, I'll show you if my father intends to kill you. And David promised, Jonathan, I'll be merciful to your children. See, the covenant's all David and Jonathan. It's between David and Jonathan. It's dependent upon David and Jonathan to fulfill their end of the bargain, isn't it? Mephibosheth didn't know anything about this. Never even heard of it. Mephibosheth didn't do anything, have to do anything to ratify the covenant. No. Mephibosheth is purely a recipient of the grace of the covenant that was between David and Jonathan. It was all dependent upon David and Jonathan. When God's covenant of grace, that covenant is dependent upon the father and the son. They are the ones who must ratify this covenant. The father chose a people and he gave him to his son to save. And the son did what he promised he would do. He did everything that it took to save those people from their sin. He was made flesh so he could be their representative, so he could be the second Adam, and he obeyed the law for them. He did for them what they couldn't do. He obeyed the law for them. His obedience is their obedience. And he took their sin and his own body upon the tree, and he put it away by his bloody, awful, horrible sacrifice. He put their sin away and justified them so that the father would accept them. The son did everything that he promised the father he would do. But now here's the thing about David and Jonathan's covenant. This covenant, it cannot be in effect until Jonathan dies. Jonathan has to die before David could ever be king. If Jonathan is still living after Saul's dead, Jonathan's the heir. Jonathan will take the throne because he's his father's son. David never will be king and and be able to fulfill his promise until Jonathan dies. There's got to be death to fulfill this covenant. Well, the same thing's true of God's covenant. 
in order for the father to show mercy to his people, the son had to die. The son had to die and the father had to be the one to put him to death. At least David didn't have to kill his dear friend. The father had to put his son to death. The father had to do it in order for his covenant to be ratified. The son must die under the wrath of his father for the sin of his people. Now I'm telling you, that's mercy. That's mercy that the father would give his son what you and I deserve so his people could be saved. That's mercy. Oh, the depths of God's mercy. And here's how important it was for the father to keep his promise. Now he, the father promised he would do this. It was so important to the father for him to keep his promise. He slaughtered his son. You parents, can you think of anything that would make you slaughter one of your children? Not one, can you? It is so important to the father that he keep his promise to save his people from their sin by his mercy and grace. He's the very one that slaughtered his son. He made his soul an offering for sin. Now that's God's salvation. It's done in justice, isn't it? He gave his son justice. And it's done in mercy. Mercy that he gives to his people is purchased by the blood of Christ. So now the father shows mercy to his people. And you know why he does? Because he promised his son he'd do it. He promised his son. God's elect. See, God's covenant of grace is not between you and God. It's between the father and the son. God's elect don't do anything to ratify this covenant. God's elect don't do anything to make this covenant apply to me. We don't deserve mercy from God. Christ did all that for us, didn't he? God's elect are purely recipients of God's mercy and grace. And God did it for his glory. For his glory. I can show you that in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 36. God did this for his glory. And he, boy, he makes, it, he makes it clear to us now. Ezekiel chapter 36. God has been talking about how his people, when they go into idolatry, he'll judge them and he'll send these countries in to to scatter them abroad, take them captives in, in their different countries and stuff. He says in verse 20, when they entered into the heathen, the heathen came and captured them, took them to their country as slaves. When they entered into the heathen, whither they went, they profaned my holy name. When they said to them, these are the people of the Lord and are gone forth out of his land. But I had pity for mine holy name, which the Lord of house had profaned among the heathen, whither they went. Therefore say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, I do not this for your sakes, O house of Israel, but for mine holy namesake, which you have profaned among the heathen, whether you win. And I will sanctify my great name, which was profaned among the heathen, which you profaned in the midst of them. And the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, saith the Lord God, when I shall be sanctified in you before their eyes. For I'll take you from among the heathen, and gather you out of all the countries, and will bring you into your own land. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean. From all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give unto you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. 
and I'll pour my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you should keep my judgments and do them and ye shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and ye should be my people and I will be your God. Now why? Why would God do all that for such a sinful, rebellious people that quit worshiping God and started worshiping idols? Why would God do all that? He said in verse 22, I do not this for your sakes, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake. I'm doing this because this is what I promised that I would do. See, God's going to do everything that he promised. He's going to save his sinful people from their sin. They're going to be so vile. They're going to be just such lost cases. And God's going to save them anyway so that his name is glorified. God promised he'd do it. If God breaks his promise, he loses all his glory. If God casts out even one that he gave to his son, he'll lose all of his glory. Not just a little bit of it. His glory just won't be tarnished. He'll lose all of it. God's going to glorify his name in saving his people from their sin because that's what he promised he would do. And the salvation of God's elect is sure because it's based upon the promise of God. All right, number two, why would David show mercy? Why would God show mercy to sinners? It's for Jonathan's sake, for Jonathan's sake. Look back in uh, our text here, 2 Samuel 9, verse 1. He says, is there any left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? In verse 7, David said unto Mephibosheth, fear not, I will surely show thee kindness for Jonathan's sake. For Jonathan, thy father's sake. Mephibosheth is not for your sake. It's for Jonathan's sake. Now, when David came to the throne, he didn't even know Mephibosheth existed. He had to ask about it. He didn't know. He didn't know Mephibosheth. He didn't even know anything about him. He didn't know where he was. didn't know anything about him. So why would David choose to be merciful to a man he didn't know? Maybe Mephibosheth didn't deserve it. Maybe Mephibosheth wasn't anything like his father. I mean, if he's like his, his daddy, sure, you want to be kind to him. But what if he's not like his daddy? Maybe I don't want to be merciful to this guy. Maybe I wouldn't even like Mephibosheth. You know, if, if I bring Mephibosheth up here and, and uh, maybe we have a personality conflict, we don't even like one another. Why would David be merciful to Mephibosheth? It's because David loved Jonathan. David loved Jonathan as his own soul. That's why David entered into this covenant with Jonathan in the first place, because he loved him. He loved him. They loved each other. Well, God the Father has an elect people. The difference between David and God is this. God knows them. He knows those people. He knows what they're like. He knows their nature. He knows their character. He knows where they're at. He knows they're vile sinners. He knows they're his enemy. He knows they're the opposite of him in every way. And I promise you this, God knows it better than we do. They're not worthy of the least of his mercies. They're not worthy. They're not innocent bystanders in this thing of sin. No, it's just not like, well, you know, Adam sinned and he represented him and blessed the heart. You know, they didn't mean it. No, they meant it. They meant it. They're the leaders of the pack in this rebellion against God. Then why on earth would the Father be merciful to those people? Because he loves his son. Because he loves Christ and those people are in, in his son. Why would the father be merciful to his sinful people? It's for Christ's sake. 
It's for Christ. It's because of what Christ has done. Not because of anything they've done. It's because of what Christ has accomplished for them. Salvation, from its beginning to its ending, is all for Christ's sake. It's all for Christ's sake. It's all because of what Christ did for his people. It's all because of who Christ is. Salvation of sinners is all because the Lord Jesus Christ did what the Father loves. He is what the Father loves and he did what the Father loves. The only reason David would be merciful to Mephibosheth is for Jonathan's sake. There's no reason found in Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth couldn't do anything for David. When you think about a new king coming into power, kind of like a new president or whatever, what, what do they do? They, they fill their cabinet with their cronies, with people they think can help them do this or that or the other, you know. That, is David going to fill his cabinet, his inner circle, with only people who can help him? Well, David, if you're going to do that, Ziba says, you don't want Mephibosheth in your inner circle. David, he's, he's lame. You got to carry him everywhere he goes. He can't do anything for himself. He can't do anything surely for you. He's, in verse 2 says, there was uh, the house of Saul, a servant whose name was Ziba. And when they called him unto David, the king said to him, Art thou Ziba? He said, Thy servant is he. And the king says, Is there not yet any of the house of Saul, that I may show the kindness of God unto him? And Ziba said unto the king, Man, Jonathan hath yet a son, but now he's lame on his feet. He's lame on his feet. Now look back at 2 Samuel chapter 4. How'd this happen? He wasn't just born this way. How'd this happen? Mephibosheth became lame in a fall. 2 Samuel 4, verse 4. And Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son that was lame on his feet. He was five years old when the tidings of Saul and Jonathan came out of Jezreel. Saul and Jonathan were killed in battle in Jezreel. The news came back home, and his nurse took Mephibosheth up and fled. And it came to pass that she made haste to flee that he fell and became lame. She dropped him. He fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Now I point this out because Mephibosheth, he's a picture of you and me. You and I became dead in the fall of Adam. We became dead. We didn't just become lame, but you know, we can still move our arms. No, we became dead in the fall of Adam. And since we're dead, we don't have the capacity to do anything to help God. We, we can't do anything that God wants because we're dead. We don't have that ability. So if we're going to be saved, somebody else is going to have to do it for us, aren't they? We can't do anything to please God. So if God's going to accept us, it can't be on our account. It has to be on the account of somebody else. Look at Titus chapter 3. That someone else is the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation is never because of anything that we do. Never for our sake. It's always for Christ's sake. Titus chapter 3. Verse 5. Not by works of righteousness, which we've done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. 
Every part of salvation is for Christ's sake. Every part of it. God's elect are righteous for Christ's sake. Based on his obedience to the law, not ours. It's for Christ's sake. God's elect are holy. For Christ's sake. He is our sanctification. God's elect are forgiven. They're forgiven of all their sin. For Christ's sake. Y'all forgive one another, Paul said. As God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. God has forgiven his people for Christ's sake. Because of the blood of Christ. Because of the sacrifice of Christ. God's elect are accepted before the God's throne of grace. Why? Because we're accepted in the beloved. It's all for Christ's sake. Now David sent and fetched Mephibosheth. And I, I don't I don't know this, but my suspicion is Mephibosheth was a sight. Don't you reckon? Here he is, he's out hiding in this, this place, you know, and I just reckon he was a sight. Maybe he was kind of dirty, he's unshaven, he just hair not combed. I, I, that's just the way I picture him. That might not be so, but that's the way I picture him. Well, Mephibosheth came and fell down at David's feet. You know what David saw? He didn't see a dirty beggar. He didn't see a man lame on both his feet. David saw Jonathan. David saw Jonathan. The man he loved as his own soul. And David's love for Jonathan was poured out on Mephibosheth. Not because of who Mephibosheth is, for Jonathan's sake. Because David loved Jonathan. Now that's beautiful, isn't it? That's beautiful. Want to tell you something better? When God the Father looks at his people, he doesn't see a sinful, vile, wretched, rebellious people. You know who he sees? He sees his son. And that's all he sees. He sees his son. And all of the Father's love for his son is poured out on his people. Not because we did anything good for the son's sake. Because the father loves the son. And he loves his people for Christ's sake because of who Christ is. Thank God that the salvation of sinners is because the father loves the son. Because you and I are unlovable and we can't do anything to make God love us. But if the salvation of our soul is based on this fact, that the Father loves the Son, salvation is sure. Because the Father will never stop loving the Son. Then number three, why would David show mercy? Why would God show mercy to sinners? Because mercy is the only hope that Mephibosheth had. When David gets Mephibosheth and brings him into his, before his throne, Mephibosheth asks the same question that David asked. Remember when David sat before the Lord, the Lord promised him the Messiah. David is coming through you. I'm going to establish your throne forever. The Messiah is going to sit on the throne of David. And David sat before the Lord and said, who am I? And what is my house that you'd be so merciful to? Who am I? Mephibosheth is asking the same thing in verse 8. What is thy servant that thou shouldest look upon such a dead dog as I am? 
Now I want to ask you, is there anything more useless than a dead dog? Is there anything more useless than that? Is there anything more offensive looking? Is there anything worse smelling than a dead dog? That's who he is. And Mephibosheth says, why me? Why me? Well, David's going to show mercy to Mephibosheth because mercy is Mephibosheth's only hope. Without mercy, Mephibosheth's going to be put to death. Mephibosheth, he'd been put in a place where there was no life and there was no hope of getting life. If Mephibosheth's going to have anything, somebody's going to have to give it to him. Look at verse 4. The king said unto, unto Ziba, where is he? And Ziba said unto the king, behold, he's in the house of Maker, the son of Amiel in Lodabar. Now that word maker means sold. And the word Lodabar means no pasture, no bread. But Phibosheth, he's in a place, it's a picture. It's a picture of us. We're sold under sin. We're sold. And we're in a land where there's no pasture for God's sheep. There's no green grass. There's no bread of life. We're in a place where there is no life and there's nothing to sustain life. There's, there's nothing we can get to give us life. Mephibosheth is in a place where he can't get anything. It's a picture of being dead in sin. What a horrible, horrible place to be. He's got no hope but the kindness of somebody else. It's only all we ask. Now it seems hopeless, but there's hope. There's hope. If you're in a place where you're sold under sin, you're in a place where there's no bread, there's no life. There's hope. Because you know where else Mephibosheth is? He's in the house of Maker, the son of Amiel. You know what that name Amiel means? My kinsman is God. <laughs> Mephibosheth can't save himself. Mephibosheth can't give himself life. But there's hope. He still has hope. Somebody can save him, and it's God. Somebody can redeem him. And it's God himself. Mephibosheth can't redeem himself, can he? But there's one who can. And in a way, David acted as the kinsman redeemer for Mephibosheth. He restored to Mephibosheth everything that Saul lost. It was all given back to him freely. He restored all the land. He restored all the money. He restored all the servants. Everything that belonged to Saul now belonged to Mephibosheth. David restored everything Saul lost only better, only better. Mephibosheth got back everything that Saul lost and he got something else. He got to eat at the king's table as one of the king's sons. Now, he's not the son of Saul. He's eating at David's table as a son of David. Look at verse seven. And David said unto him, fear not, for I will surely show thee kindness for Jonathan thy father's sake and will restore all Restore thee all the land of Saul thy father, and thou shalt eat bread at my table continually. Now that's such a good picture of God's elect, what Christ has done for us. Christ restored everything to his people that we lost in Adam. Everything. Only better. Only better. Adam had a righteousness, but he could lose it, couldn't he? And he did. He lost it by his own obedience, or disobedience, excuse me. In Christ, God's elect are made righteous. Not given a righteousness you can mess up. 
They're made righteous so they can never be unrighteous again. Adam had a life, but he could lose it. And boy, he did. The moment he ate that fruit, he and Eve died, didn't they? They died. God's elect are given life, eternal life, so they can never perish. There's an article. You go home, read it carefully. I think it's on the back of the bulletin by Pastor Donnie Bell, pointing out how Adam is better off clothed in Christ outside the garden than he ever was in the garden. Chew on that for a while. That's so. We're better off in Christ than we would be innocent in the garden. Because in Christ, that life can't be lost. Mephibosheth received everything he had as a free gift of David's grace. David had to give him everything he had. It's the only way. David says in verse 9, And the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said unto him, I've given unto thy master's son all that pertained to Saul and to his house. He gave it. Isn't that God's elect? Everything we have is because God gave it to us. God gave it to us. Why do you even live in a place where you can hear the gospel of Christ? How is it you ever even heard of the Lord Jesus Christ? God gave you that opportunity. He gave it to you. Why is it you see Christ and you believe him? Why don't don't you go off some free will place? Why don't you go off some Pentecostal place? I promise you they're more exciting than me. Why don't you? Because God gave you faith in Christ. He gave you faith in Christ. Why don't you go to some free will place? I mean, buddy, they're going to pump you up a whole lot more than I will. Tell you how great you are, how good you are, all this stuff you can do. You know, why, why don't you go get pumped up like that? Because God's given you a view of yourself. God's given you a need of Christ. God's given you the righteousness of Christ. God's given it to you. He's given you grace and mercy so that you cannot leave him. Everything we have is by God's grace. Wouldn't you a whole lot rather be saved by God's grace than your own works? You know why you want that? God's gave you that desire. (laughs) He gave it to you. And Mephibosheth received it. He didn't earn it. He received it. Now, David, he determined to have mercy on old Mephibosheth, and he didn't leave it up to Mephibosheth to come get it. David made sure he came and got it. David sovereignly brought him. Verse 5. Then King David sent and fetched him out of the house of Maker, the son of Amiel from Lodabar. Now, fetched. That's a good Eastern Kentucky word, isn't it? I like they use that word because you know what that tells me? Hillbillies can understand the gospel. Hillbillies can understand grace. Hillbillies can be brought to Christ. We all know what it means to be fetched. When you fetch something, you go get a dead inanimate object that can't come on its own and you bring it to where you want it to be. That's what God does for his people. He fetches them. Mephibosheth had to be fetched, didn't he? He couldn't come to David on his own. He would never dare come before David's throne on his own because he just figured he'd be killed. God has to fetch his people to Christ because we'll never come on our own. But he fetches them. God sends the Holy Spirit and he fetches them. He fetches them to Christ. 
And there's no doubt he'll do it. Remember what the Savior said? All that the Father giveth me, they shall come to me. They shall. If him that cometh to me, I'll know why he's cast out. Now, how can you be so sure they're all going to come to Christ? The Holy Spirit's going to fetch them. He's going to fetch them and bring them to Christ. He's going to fetch them and draw them to his son by his eternal love for them. David fetched him and brought Mephibosheth to that place where he could be an object of David's mercy and grace. But one more thing. Here's one more way Mephibosheth is a picture of a believer. Verse 13. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he did eat continually at the king's table and was lame on both his feet. Mephibosheth never got stronger and could walk on his own. David didn't find, find a, you know, the best doctors and, and here's a miracle cure. Now Mephibosheth can walk on his own. Now he can, he can do all this stuff for David. No, Mephibosheth's still lame on both his feet. He still lived out the rest of his days completely dependent on King David. Well, that's a believer. God saved us. He's been merciful to us. He's caused us to be born again. He's given us a new nature. But we still got that old man we carry around with us everywhere we go. We still can't walk on our own. We still can't. We still need the Lord to carry us everywhere we go. We still need the Lord to do everything for us. We still live completely dependent upon God's grace. And God still gives us everything we need. He still brings us to his table and says, eat freely. You know why? It's for Christ's sake. And that's what the story of Mephibosheth is all about. And if God will ever show us how much like Mephibosheth we are, maybe we'll be an object of God's grace too. All right, let's bow together.